0: If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to Mark's Gospel, to chapter 5. It's page 710 and 711 in our church Bibles. We've been working through Mark's Gospel verse by verse. So here we are this morning in um, chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. I told the folks in the first service that when I was in high school, I never was like a partier, so I didn't stay up, you know, late and figure out what it felt like the next day. So the closest thing that I come, I think, to that is the day after the pig roast and the day after the Thanksgiving summer, you know, you work real hard and all night, and you get up, you know, you have to go to bed later than you usually do, and you get up earlier. So I woke up this morning, and I greeted with my wife with a, hello, Nicole, it's time to get out of bed, you know? <laughs> so, sorry about that. That's, that was the truth, <laughs> Okay, good morning, everybody. It's time to read our Bibles. (laughs) Verse 21, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there seeing Jesus. He fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter's dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering." While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. "'Your daughter's dead,' they said. "'Why bother the teacher anymore?' Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, "'Don't be afraid. Just believe.'" He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, "'Why all this commotion and wailing? The child's not dead.'" but asleep, but they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum which means, little girl, I say to you, get up immediately. The girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Would you please bow with me? So, Father, we uh, say this so often here that some people water and some people plant, but the waterer and the planter are nothing but only you, God, who makes things grow, which means we can work as hard as we can and we should, But we'll never be able to make converts, God. Only you can. And so we pray that as the message of the cross rang out um, last night, that everyone in this place that was outside of your son, in your great mercy, and we would just add, God, by way of petition, quickly, they would come to know you and come to know Jesus through repentance and faith in him. We pray, God, that they would be converted. We pray to you because you're the only one that can do such a thing. We pray that you would bring them into this church or a good Christ-centered church. We pray that they would be baptized, become part of the body, and enjoy their new covenant privileges. And God, we, we know um, that the soil most of the time isn't good, but we do know that there are soils which are ready and ripe. And so we ask, God, in your great mercy that that would be the case for everyone that was here last night. Now, God, we have a privilege to um, open your word, to read it, and to try to understand it, and we're going to need the Holy Spirit's help to teach us this text. And so that's what we plead for now, God, for Jesus' sake, amen. Now, we said in many different ways last time, on account of the opening verses, uh, verses 1 to 20 of this uh, chapter 5, that... The main teaching of the Bible in when it comes to humanity is pretty straightforward. The entire human race fell as a result of the sin in Adam and Eve in the garden, and that because of this, by nature, all men and all women are slaves to sin. In other words, the sin in the garden has released this deadly, unescapable force into the entire world that infects and affects every human being right from birth. In other words, the sin in the garden um, has basically means that people outside of Christ are slaves to sin. As a result of this, they are ruled by dark forces of evil. And you see, this is one of the reasons why when we read and study the Gospels, those people in the Gospels who have trouble with Jesus or Jesus has trouble with them, are the kind of people who really don't think things through. They really don't think they're as bad as sinners, as Jesus is saying, and they really think that in their religion, they're very, very good. So they will not need his death, and they do not need his grace to put them in the right with God. And as we saw in the earlier chapters, they look down on everyone else by pointing out their faults and their failures. So Mark comes along and says, wait a minute. The human condition is so bad that we all need God's grace and we all need God's son's death because humanity is fallen. And so you have no right to look down on everyone else because all of humanity is fallen, including the people who are looking down on everyone else. And see, when the believer begins to let that be in their framework, let their lives, if you would, be established in the truth, we would be able to think then for the joy and profit of Jesus Christ and the world. Because Christianity is so much more than, you know, Sunday by Sunday, be good, do good. Moral lesson one, moral lesson 2001. Because someone will have to ask themselves, will I ever be good enough? Right? Will I ever be good enough so that no human being will condemn me? No. No. You will not be good enough, but you can be good enough only in Christ, clothed in his righteousness, covered in his blood, which is why stories like these matter. Mark is saying, listen, don't believe and don't behave in a way where you function like you don't need the gospel. Which is why we said last time in the opening verses of chapter 5 that this man's demon possession, while certainly being an extreme picture, is the picture of all humanity. And therefore, the humanity's only hope out of this perilous position is Jesus Christ. So Jesus, we said, crosses the lake to get to a lost, fallen, demon-possessed man giving us a picture of the grace of God. The man, the town, the legions of demons, they want nothing to do with Jesus. That is the effect of the fall, dead in sin, dead to Christ, and of course, a third of the angelic host, fallen as well, yet only by God's grace, right? Jesus speaks and new life that this, this man receives because he did not ask for anything from Jesus. He's like Paul on the Damascus Road, He just gets grace. And because of grace, he is, verse 15, he's dressed. You see it there? And he's at peace. He's healed. He's helped. He's converted. And what does converted people do as a result of the life-changing power of Jesus? Chapter 5, verse 20, he tells people in those 10 cities how much Jesus has done for them, him. And so should we. But Mark's making that clear point. Only Jesus can save the person. Only Jesus can do it. And by golly, he did it. And by the way, this is what makes so much sense. In the opening chapter, the opening verse of Mark's gospel, he wrote at the beginning of the gospel saying, this is the gospel about Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ, Son of God. So this gospel then tells us good news about Jesus, that Jesus in his divinity has power to calm storms. He has power to rescue people from sin's power and from hell's bondage. But not only this, these next two stories are gonna show us, one today, Lord willing, one next week, it's gonna show us that the two other effects of the fall of humanity, sickness and death, Jesus has power over them. Jesus is gonna heal a sick lady and he's going to heal and bring back to life, if you would, the death of this young girl. Sickness and death, the two other effects of the fall. Now, it's beautiful and it's rational, if you think about it. It's beautiful because this is a story that lo- the love that Jesus has to set captives free. People in the worst of places, he comes and shows his power. It's rational because, you know, you would have thought by now, if we could have fixed the world. We would have fixed the world. I mean, like 25, 30 years under Christian instruction. You to think that's enough to make us, you know, high powered evangelists and high powered moral people. But who's prepared to be honest? We can't because of sin, which is why Mark is driving home the point in chapter 5 our only hope in life that we live and our only hope in the death that is coming is Jesus Christ. Period. Period. Now, this story about a woman actually begins with a man, right? Go figure. That's, that's just the way it is, the man. And as you're looking at the text there in verse 21, it's a wonder that Jesus isn't seasick by now, right? In about a 24-hour period, he goes across the lake to get to the demon-filled man. The town says, get out. He goes back across the lake. Matthew tells us he goes back to his own town. Marcus says, hometown for Jesus is Capernaum. And if you piece it all together with Luke's gospel, it's about a day and a night. Nevertheless, being out of the boat, verse 21, if your Bible's open, the crowds once again gather around Jesus. Why not? He's a celebrity. He does deeds that baffle people. No No one has done anything near what he's done. And so the crowds press Kind of like groupies, if you would. They want to touch him. They want to get near him. But isn't it amazing? Only two people will bow down to him the sick lady and the dad with the dying daughter. Because you think, I mean, you have to be rational. You would think, with all the things that Jesus is doing and all the good things that he's saying, that there would just be thousands of followers, right? You know, power, power, wonder working power. And people like that kind of thing. Bam, thousands of followers. That's not happening. It's not happening because this is what we've been learning. It's only by faith that anyone can come to Jesus. And ultimately, the epistles tell us, Ephesians 2 for 1, that this faith is a grace given. It is a given faith, even as people are still culpable for their actions. So the people weren't coming to him. Yeah, yeah, they were following him, but they weren't following following him, not believing in him and not obeying him. So in garrison, the the crowds, verse 17, uh, they want Jesus to leave leave after all that goodness. Finally, you know, the the crazy naked demon man is calm and the town is at peace, but they want Jesus to leave. Capernaum, verse 40, they laugh at him, right? Jesus wants to help a little girl. He's, He's gonna show his mighty power. And you would think just like on a human level, dead girl laying there, Jesus says she's not a dead but asleep. You would think the humans would go, come okay, maybe, maybe the girl can live. I mean, maybe, just maybe. So, so go do what you've got to do, Jesus, because there's a chance. No, that's not the human condition. The human condition is this: get out, dead. You're funny. Still in the crowd, there's one man named Jairus. Okay, why is he there? Well, first of all, who is he? Well, he's a synagogue ruler, verse 22, which meant he was a man of stature and he was a man of significance in the community. He was someone that was well-respected and probably... A person that people either looked up to or maybe even, you know, bowed down to. And yet, verse 22, he sees Jesus in light of his daughter's condition. In the Greek, it's just immediate. He collapses at at the feet of Jesus Christ. As soon as he sees him, collapse. So this man who was one of the leaders of the synagogue, who more than likely mixed with the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees in chapter 3, verse 6, they wanted Jesus dead. So I'm sure there was a few meetings with this man and those Pharisees about how we can get to Jesus and all of a sudden the tide has turned as it so often can. And now, instead of planning the murder of Jesus, he's at the feet of Jesus. That's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. Now, before we go any further, we just need to at least say this, that the way a person approaches Jesus Christ makes all the difference, right? If we come to Jesus full tilt straight on our feet, giving orders, that won't fly. If we come to Jesus with our hands waving, condemning others, Luke 18, thankful that we're not like them, that won't fly. If we come to Jesus as Jairus, And this posture of kneeling, of being in great need, expressed through the bowing, well, this is sincere. This is sincere because he, like hopefully we, are aware of our weakness, how aware of our frailty, how aware of how quickly things can turn. And then we know Christ is the only one who can help us. One quick question. Are you a bower to Jesus Christ? Are you a bower to Jesus Christ? I didn't say, are you a comer to church? But are you a bower to Jesus Christ? So why is this man there? Well, his daughter, verse 23, pleading earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. The great crisis of any father's life. She's dying. Important man, dying daughter. Great faith. Verse 23, my daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So doubtless, the word had got out about Jesus. And Jairus is convinced as a man of authority, he understands that Jesus is his daughter's only hope. Yeah, he can provide food, Jairus can, and he can provide clothes for his daughter. And maybe because of his position, he can kind of cut out a path of success for her. But that is where his power ends. It ends there again because in light of the fall, in light of original sin and all its deadly effects, he needs saving power. He doesn't have it. And once again, Mark says, only Jesus. Only Jesus has it and only Jesus can save this little girl. That's the man. So again, if your Bible is open, verse 24, and Jesus went with him, a large crowd followed and pressed Around him now to the woman, a woman. If you're tracking with the notes behind the or in the back of the worship folder, so my mark is beginning to lay the, the groundwork. Right, crowds pressing. Right, 12 year old dying, and then this woman who has a 12 year old problem of her own, bleeding. Verse 25, 12 years bleeding, and we're not told exactly what this was, so we won't really press the issue, because the greater point comes in verse 26. But again. It's just like the man who was demon-filled, right? No one in the town can help him. They tried. No one could subdue him. They tried. So it wasn't a lack of effort. So in other words, it wasn't enough communal power to fix it, right? Because that's sometimes we think, again, all the people come together, all come together as one, fix it. Didn't happen. Verse 26, much the same thing. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors And had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. If you've ever read the biography of Andrew Murray, he was a a man who lived in the 19th, 18th century, and he was a leader of Christian orphanages in England. When he was writing out his testimony, he said that the night after his father died, after the funeral, excuse me, that he went on a drunken rampage. And he gambled all night and he said that you would have thought that I'd have grown better. And he has a line, instead of growing better after the death of my father, I grew worse. I grew worse. Many doctors, nothing. All she had, all her money, nothing. Her sickness grew worse. Giving the sense, now pay attention to this, no sense of relief for 12 years. Right? So no no Saturdays off. No relief. 12 years. So not only was she then physically unbearable in in her condition, but she had social unacceptance. Because like the demon-possessed man who was called unclean, she was unclean. And in light of Jewish law, because of her condition, a lot of things would happen to her. No contact with her. Don't get in any proximity to her at all. And if you did, then you would have to be rendered unclean yourself or you'd have to go through all those ceremonial washings to be welcomed back into the community, which means when you saw this lady, you said, there comes a problem. Here comes a problem. She was a problem. She had a problem. Stay away from her. Physically unbearable, socially unacceptable, excluded from all the privileges of Jewish worship, of Jewish life as well. No more synagogue for her. And, and we, do, we would do well to notice this pattern which is unfolding. And this is important because what we're finding out is Jesus has such great affection for the least, the last, and the lowest, and the weakest in the eyes of men and women. Jesus has a preference, clearly, it would almost seem, for those in lowly conditions or at the very least, those who know themselves in massive need. Right? Levi and his wild friends. Jesus goes to them. Crazy, naked, demon-filled man. Jesus goes to them. However, most of the religious establishment, the power people, if you would, in the community, they find themselves shunned by Jesus. Why? Well, because they think they're in. Jesus is like, listen, right now you're out. And those who say, we're out. And those who were treated like, we're out. And say, I could never be in. Jesus has said, come on in. Come on in. And Jairus is apparently given the grace to know his frailty, that he would turn to Jesus. This lady is very clear. All I have, nothing. I'm hurting bad, and I need Jesus. Why does she need Jesus? Because Jesus said he was like a good doctor, and he goes to sick people. He doesn't go to healthy people. Everything about the religious way of life at that time kept religious people away from the very ones who needed God. You understand that. That's a big statement. Everything about their religious life kept people away from the very people who needed God. So the social stigma which came attached to her sickness was there, which makes me want to say, listen, when a church doesn't get that, when we don't understand that like Jesus, we are to go to the least and the last and the lowest, those who are the outcast, then a church can very quickly turn in upon itself. They lose any sense of mission. And they begin to think that the church is actually their body. And not the body of Christ. So they become more like a religious club. And they do religious things. And they sing religious songs. And they have religious talks. And if things are right, they can even have those religious feelings. As if it were, we were here only for our benefit. And nothing more. But the spirit of Christ, as we so clearly see, the spirit of Christ moves his people to the outsider. Because Jesus breaks down barriers. He, he bursts out of old wineskins. And with all this touching that's happening, right? The demon-possessed man touched by Jesus. The leading, bleeding lady touches Jesus. The soon dead girl, she'll be touched by Jesus. Jesus himself is ceremonially unclean. And that's just fine with Jesus. Whatever stigma, bring it on, Jesus would say. And it's not because it doesn't matter. Of course it matters. But Jesus knows by his touching of all these unclean people, that's pointing to the day that's soon coming for him where he's gonna go to the cross and he's gonna take on all our uncleanness of the whole world, all the sin of the whole world. And he's gonna hang there suffering and dying to atone for it all. That's the spirit of Christ losing his life for the sake of the gospel. And you see, that's why all these details that Mark gives us, they're they're not extraneous to the text. They're, they're, They're not unimportant. They matter because they paint a picture of this lady who's absolutely hopeless. No one can save her. She's lost her health, wealth, and she hears about Jesus and holy cow, here he comes. Verse 27, you see it there? She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Now, that's kind of interesting. And that tells us she's a lady of her time. Because common thought of that day was something like this. Look, if a healer comes into town and I just touch him anywhere, then presto, there's a great chance that I'll be healed too. And the point of all this is their faith was not perfect, was it? The best that she could do with her faith was get to the garment, touch it, and that'll be enough. And if you're going to be honest and you think about it, it's a little superstitious, little magic. Touch, fine. But she's at the end of her rope. She's tried everything possible. She's gone to every source possible. She spent every penny she had. And now 12 years into it, here comes Jesus. And the result, well, you see it there. Mark loves this word. Verse 29, immediately Verse 29, her bleeding stopped. Verse 20, at once, same Greek word, Jesus realized his power had come out of him. And in light of all that, what does Jesus say? Do you see it there? He says, who touched me? Aren't you glad? Here comes a joke. Get ready to maybe laugh. (laughs) Jesus said, who touched me? Aren't you glad Jesus said, didn't say, excuse me, can't touch me? Little M.C. Hammer, for those of you who lived in the 90s there. Final point, the touch. So this is a different touch, isn't it? Jesus answers this power that's uh, surging out of him with the question, who touched me? In other words, and this is important, there is no uh, supernatural, there's no paranormal awareness in Jesus Christ of who actually touched him. So someone asked, hey, I thought Jesus knew everything. So why didn't he know who touched him? Or someone would say, you know what? Jesus knew who touched him. He was just saying that to kind of uh, move the story along. No. God the Spirit chose to tell us through Mark's pen. She touched his cloak. Verse 29, she felt her miracle. She was freed from her agony. Jesus knew someone had touched him. Jesus knew power had gone out of him. However, he did not know who touched him that way. So he stops. And remember, there's a dying girl waiting to be helped by Jesus. Still, Jesus stops. He stops. And then those rude disciples, right? Verse 31, you see the people cried in against you. His disciples answered. And yet you can ask, who touched me? It's like, guys, mind your place, right? It's the son of God you're talking to. Back off. But no matter, Jesus, verse 32, he's still looking around. Then she comes forward, verse 33, and the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And again, that might be one of my favorite verses of the whole section. And this is why. And I'll, now stay with me as we kind of track through this. Verse 26, she suffered a great deal under the care of many physicians. That phrase struck me, so I did some digging. And I wanted to know, okay, what was the Galilean Medical Association like at that time, right? Because I want you to understand that no one at that time was actually cured of a disease by a doctor because they didn't understand the pathology of disease or or the pathology of illness, right? So it wasn't until the, the 19th century when those things became online. In fact, surgeons... At least in the West, they didn't wash their hands as a practice until the early part of the 20th century. So the physicians, they could help a bit. And the more elevated ones, according to the Talmud, had, had some things to do. They used uh, toxins and astringents. And that seemed to help. So this book that I just mentioned, Talmud, it was a collection of rabbinic sayings that were first oral, and then they began to get written down so they could have them in a book. And this is what this book says about the prescription for a woman who had this type of bleeding problem, okay? This is what it says according to the Talmud. She was to carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen bag in the summer and to carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a cotton bag in the winter or carry a barley corn found in donkey dung or drink wine with um, alum and crocus or drink wine... With onions. So on one level you'd have to say, holy cow, it's a wonder she isn't dead. Right? (laughs) She spent all her money. The real doctors who served the rich. The fake ones who exploited the poor. They can't help her. Same outcome. Money gone and she's worse. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Man on the Moon. It's a story about the life of Andy Kaufman. He was a comedian. He he had cancer I think in his mid-30s. And he was near death, and so he decided that he would go to a New Age doctor in the Philippines. And so the movie at the near the end cuts to the scene where he's laying on uh, the bed. And it's one of those things I suspect most of you are familiar with where the guru basically reaches in some red juice. And the whole thing is he's supposed to be able to stick his hand into uh, the stomach of the person and pull out the disease and hold it up. And everybody goes, yay, he's healed. So in the movie, what it was, was Andy was just looking at him intently and he was able to see that it was all a scam, that the guy was doing a sleight of hand. And when he pulled out the thing and showed it, Andy has two looks. One is just like, And then he laughs because he's been conned. Now I say all that because she had to endure this for 12 years. Now think, 12 years, nothing letting up. 12 years, and then in a nanosecond, she's fine. So is it any wonder, verse 33, that she came and fell at the feet, trembling with fear, telling Jesus the whole truth? Um, All those potions, the distance from friends, the distance from worship, the humiliation that she had to deal with, the the lack of relationships that she had to deal with, and by golly, she's fine now. She's fine now. Immediately, my mind went to Celine Dion. She has a song, um, When I Touched You Like This... Right, And when you hold me like that, I just have to admit that it's all coming back to me. It's hard to believe, but it's all coming back to me. It's all coming back to me now. So her old life is just all coming back and all the things that she used to do, she can do better in just a nanosecond. Now you put yourself in that lady's position. And again, is it any wonder that she fell at the feet of her master and her healer and her king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And no wonder he, she says, Pasan alitha. that's the Greek. She told them everything. This is how I imagine it in my mind. <gasps> Jesus, I woke up one day and I was bleeding. People ran me. People ran for me. The synagogue door closed to me. There was doctors and there was ostrich eggs and there was onion. They made me drink a whole lot of wine, Jesus. all oh, my money's gone and here you come. And I think all I need to do is touch your coat. And if I touch your coat, I'll be fine. I'm fine. I touch your coat. And then you ask me that question and I'm like, ooh, 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 inside. And so I just fell at your feet. See, and isn't it something that when they had that little discussion, Peter was there, and Peter is probably Mark's source, so we would never know all the details about this lady's life unless she told her story. She did. Now, here's the thing. We can't miss this point. Her faith was not orthodox, was it? Jesus did not have a magic coat. He didn't have a magic coat. So Jesus doesn't say to her, look, unless you get everything right about me, there's going to be no power coming out of me, young lady. Right? So what you need to do is you need to get in a time machine, go to West Cohasset Chapel. there in Cohasset, Minnesota. Take the basics class. Get that straight. If you clip out of there, then you come back to me, and then I'll set everything right. Did that happen? No. She doesn't get everything right still Jesus helps her. What is that? That is grace. That is grace. So he says to her, Daughter. And it's the only place you'll find in the gospel where Jesus addresses a woman like this. Daughter. And who's listening? Jairus. What's going on with him? He's got a 12-year-old problem of his own. His daughter's dying. Daughter, your faith has healed you. You go in peace and you be freed from your suffering. So you see... It was this lady's touch, the touch of faith, right? Because many people were bumping into Jesus, as we said, and he was getting touched all over the place, if you would. And if all you needed to do was touch Jesus, and like some Marvel superhero, you know, power would just surge out of Jesus uncontrolled, then apparently people would have been reporting all kinds of healings. But that was not the case. There's just one right now. And in this whole chapter, lots of people were near Jesus. They knew of Jesus. They bumped up Jesus. They laughed at Jesus. They wanted Jesus to leave their town. Chapter 6, they took offense to Jesus. Meaning, here is the human condition because of the fall. There it is right before you. So this amazing fact is that this woman who, who worked her way through all the social and practical and religious stigma, which was attached to her condition touches Jesus, her faith is imperfect, more superstitious, to be honest, and she's healed. In fact, if you think about that, wouldn't you have to say that that was a miracle? Wasn't it a miracle? Because she did not come to Jesus the right, completely right way. It's a miracle. It's a pure grace that Jesus saved her. Why? Well we go back to the beginning? Because by nature we're like the crowds. We want nothing to do with Jesus, and if we do want something to do with Jesus, we're going to approach Him our way. Touch the Coke, I'll be fine. Touch the coat, I'll be fine. But here, uh, this dear woman it begins to have some good soil. there's production that's beginning. And you could imagine that Jesus told the nice lady what really happened, that the cure was not in the touch, but in her trust, not the touch. But in the trust, because God's benevolence to her, his divine sovereignty is tying all this together, right? It's tying with the fact that she wants to be healed. So to me, it's like a cocktail of belief and trust and a little bit superstition held together by God's grace. It was an imperfect faith, but it was a faith that was seeking understanding. The bleeding woman then was healed by Jesus Not because, of course, she touched the garment, but because of her trust that Jesus would heal her. Her touch, if you would, brought together two things. Faith and Jesus. Listen to Spurgeon. He says, here is the great marvel of it all. Little as was her knowledge, and as astounding was her misconception of her Lord. Yet her faith, because it was real faith. It saved her. And because Jesus does everything well, verse 34, he leaves her with essentially a blessing. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. You just want to go, her faith wasn't perfect, but it was real. It was enough, right? Because it's not the object of our faith. Excuse me, it is the object of our faith. And it's not our faith which is the strength of our recovery because the Bible tells us all our faith needs to be is something like a mustard seed. That's it, a mustard seed. And God can do wonders with that. Listen to Professor John Murray. Wherever there is faith, As slender, as one strand of a spider's web, there the fullness of redeeming grace is active. You know, if you think about this whole thing and this whole weekend, what a moment right now to call on the power of Jesus in our life. To call on the power of Jesus in our life. So have you trusted Christ? Or are you in great need of something this morning? Well, Jesus would say, here, here I am. Here I am. You don't have to have all your theology in order. Your dilemma has been changed for, for many, many years. Maybe you've given up. Maybe you know someone who you've been praying for for many, many years. And, and you've basically given up. So the best you can do is say, Lord, I believe. But help my unbelief. So this is how we're going to end our service. We're going to take a few minutes to pray privately, and we're going to pour out our hearts to God. If we are in some great need, or we know people who have great need, we're going to pray, and we're going to ask Jesus to show us mercy and believe that He will do and He will give what's best. Pray with me now, and in a moment or two, I'll close this up. Gracious God, as you know that we, we have a a week of thanksgiving before us, and God, beyond all that is obvious of when we sit down to our tables that we would and should thank you for, I would ask God, in humility of heart and in great need, that you would grant to us, as we sit around that table, new things things that we've called out from you to help us with this morning, that you would grant to us new things that we might thank you for your grace and your mercy. Father, we pray that as we leave here that we would be well kept by you, that our minds would be stirred in the right direction, and that the love of the Lord Jesus Christ would emanate out of us in unusually powerful ways. And let that love set our course for this week, this month, and as we close out this year. And may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be yours, both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Happy Thanksgiving. You're dismissed.